it's time to experience the Synergy Connection Show with your host, Lucy Forsting. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Synergy Connection Show, where we do our best to connect the dots between the physical, the intellectual, the emotional, and the spiritual facets of who we are as human beings. And I have as a new guest today, Robert Jacob. But before we get started, I want to remind everybody that all of the shows are archived at www.SynergyConnectionRadio.com. There are, I believe, 20 pages now of shows, uh, way over 200 shows. And then you can also find me on the podcast platform. And so if you have Spotify or Apple or uh, iHeartRadio or Google that you like to listen to podcasts on, then please find me there as well and subscribe so that you can catch all the shows as they air. Um, When you go to my website, you're also going to see a little um, link there to Boomers Forever Young. And you can click on that and get their free newsletter. It's a health newsletter and it'll take you into their website where there are thousands of testimonies now uh, after people have used the products and found themselves to be much healthier. Uh, There are blogs, they have their own podcast, and there's a ton of information. I do use their products. I've been using them for over five years now, and I think it's made a big difference in my energy level and overall health. So you might want to check out their products. If you decide that you want to order something, use my first name, L-U-C-Y, and you'll get $5 off, which, you know, in today's economy, I think everything helps. So uh, be sure to check that out. Now, uh, going back to uh, Robert Jacob, I just recently met Robert, and um, he is an award-winning author. He's a presenter. He's a living historian and a public speaker and uh, when we met he didn't come in pirate costume but that's what we're going to be talking about today is uh, pirates so he's had a lifelong passion for history and he's been heavily involved in this living history interpretation and reenacting for over 40 years Um, he was originally from pittsburgh pennsylvania and he got his undergraduate degree in education and then uh, taught at a little school in West Point, Virginia for five years while completing his master's degree uh, from Virginia Commonwealth University. Uh, He is an ex-Marine. I don't know that I would necessarily look at you and go Marine material here, um, but uh, 31 years as a Marine um, and retired from that and now loves to do Uh, lectures and presentations and he's written two books and so today we are going to be talking about pirates and his latest book I just uh, went through I didn't read it word for word but I did go through it Uh, so pirates of the Florida coast and understanding who pirates are because uh, if you live in Florida and you've gone to Disney everybody goes to the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. And I, when my son was little, we went through that ride, I couldn't even tell you how many times. <laughs> Every time we went, and usually multiple times uh, while we were there. But pirates aren't exactly as they're laid out to be, I guess. So your job is to share, uh, how did you get interested in pirates of all things? 
And then secondly, you know, what do you want to do with this? I, I know that if you could become a pirate, you probably would. <laughs> well, uh, good morning, Lucy, and thank you so much for having me on your show. First thing I've got to get straight, there's no such thing as an ex-Marine. Mm. Once you're a Marine, you're always a Marine. You're just on active duty or retired. And I happen to be in the retirement status. Okay, so if they wanted to call you back up, they, they could. They sure could, yes. Okay, okay. Yeah, and uh, so... Yeah, you probably don't look at, I don't look like a Marine because I don't quite have as short a hair as I used to, but uh, the economy being what it is, I get my hair cut now about once every two months instead of once a week like I did when I was in the Corps. Oh, okay. So, you didn't do it yourself? Oh, uh, no, no. No. <laughs> All right. I, I remember when we had lunch together, mm -hmm. though, and I was going to share that older um, two men that mm -hmm. had been in the Marine Corps, and I think that they were from World War II. Yes, they were. They were both from, from Okinawa. Wow, that and I, I was just absolutely floored at, I mean, they're still very robust, uh, not necessarily physically, mm -hmm. but certainly mentally, they were very much with mm -hmm. it. So the Marine Corps does that for yes, you. Yes, it does. <laughs> That's a good thing to know. All right, so uh, Pirates, as, uh, as you said, I've been doing living history since 1971. Revolutionary War, French and Indian War, I did Mountain Man Rendezvous, and I decided to go into pirate living history after the movie Pirates of the Caribbean came out in 2003. Just a delightful movie, a lot of fun. Pirate reenactment groups sprung up everywhere, and I wanted to be a part of it. But when I go into reenacting, I want to do it the right way, from a historically accurate perspective. I want to know the history. I want to represent everything correct and true to include whatever clothing I'm wearing, whatever weapons I'm carrying. So I started to do some research and quickly found out that there were no good books on the market that really told the whole story about pirates from mm. the golden age of piracy or any other time period. There are a few good books that focus on one individual, but nothing that brought the entire scope of piracy in any part of the world. Now, Black, Blackbeard was the yes. one that most people know as a pirate, I yes. think. Um, are there others that are as famous as he was? I have to say Blackbeard is probably the most famous pirate of all time. And, uh, and that was true a couple years after his death. Hmm. Uh, stories came out about Blackbeard in the press everywhere. In fact, a very, very young Benjamin Franklin even wrote a song about him really? called The Downfall of Piracy. He was a teenager at the time he wrote that song oh and my had gosh. it published. Yes. Oh my gosh. So he was uh, the number one pirate from the time of his death, which is interesting because while he was alive, very few people knew who he was. And so how did they discover who he was after he died? Publicity. Uh, it became, uh, and that's actually a, a good topic uh, for our, our next Show? Session, okay. yeah, uh, on how Blackbeard was thrust into the public eye along with a few other famous pirates like Anne Bonny and Mary Reed, the two real female pirates. Uh, but since I came up with this new book, Pirates of the Florida Coast, uh, for now, if we could stay focused on the Florida pirates, I think that would be great. Okay. And the reason why I wrote this, uh, my new book, is my first book, uh, Pirate's Life in the Golden Age of Piracy, stops in 1722, which I put at the end of the Golden Age. Mm -hmm. And as I'm selling my book at events, people kept asking me about Florida pirates. And they're not really in my book. One is, but 
very minimal because uh, I was focusing on a broad scope of piracy throughout the world. Mm -hmm. So I decided to start researching Florida pirates, and I was actually very surprised at the result on what I uncovered. Initially, my impression was there wasn't that much in Florida. I mean, there were no major cities that were worth sacking. Augustine, of course, was attacked a couple times, but that's it. And I really thought that most of the stories about pirates in Florida were myth and legend. Mm. And that's because so many of them are myth mm. and legend. Sure. So I wanted to start researching to find out the truth. Who are the real pirates of Florida? And what's the truth behind the myth and the legend? Mm -hmm. For example, Blackbeard, as we mentioned, if you go to most of the tourist cities on the east coast of Florida, they will all tell you that this is where Blackbeard buried his treasure. <laughs> okay. In fact, probably every tourist city from Rhode Island to Miami said this is where Blackbeard buried his treasure mm. because he's a famous guy and it's good for tourism. Mm -hmm. Now there is no evidence that Blackbeard ever stopped anywhere in Florida. It's very unlikely he did. He sailed past it a bunch of times because he sailed from the Caribbean up to Virginia and uh, North Carolina on several occasions. So obviously you've got to go past Florida but it's really doubtful he ever stopped here. So that's what really started my search for the truth. The second big question I always got is about Tampa's most famous pirate, Jose Gaspar, mm -hmm. which of course the Gasparilla Festival is based upon. So people would say, what's the truth about Jose Gaspar? And after some pretty extensive research, I've narrowed it down to exactly who this mythical pirate was and where he came from. And who was he? Uh, He's a product of the Gasparilla Festival. Oh, he's totally created? Totally created. There was some evidence that there was a pirate named Jose Gaspar operating in the East Caribbean in 1822. There was a story that came out in a newspaper, an 1822 newspaper in Pensacola about the arrest of a pirate named Jose Gaspar by the U.S. Navy. And that's it. Very small story. He's mentioned once. Not the same guy at all. Now, in 1904, Tampa decided, we want to have a major festival. We want to compete with Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras brings in millions of dollars to the community. Mm -hmm. And Tampa was anxious to capitalize on that kind of success. Now, they were planning a May Day celebration, and they thought pirates are a great draw to the public. As you mentioned, you went to Pirates of the Caribbean every time you went to Disney. Yep. People like pirates. Yep. And moreover, they like to dress like pirates. Right. The more flamboyant, the better. Right. So they decided to have a pirate parade and a pirate ball that evening. And they invented a crew, ye mystic crew of Gasparilla, to kind of put the whole thing together. Well, if you're going to do that, you need a real pirate to base this upon. So they tasked one of the members of the crew to write a quick backstory on who this mythical person was. At that time, he was just called Gasparilla. Jose hadn't entered into it yet. Oh. Uh, so they came up with a story of who this pirate Gasparilla was, that he was on the island of Gasparilla, which of course is Boco Grande. It's a real island south of us here. 
and the festival was a huge success. It continued on throughout the years until 1913, where it became a standalone event for the very first time. Hmm. Now, meanwhile, the Charlotte Harbor and Northern Railroad was operating out of Boca Grande. In 1907, they constructed a railroad line going to the island because they had a phosphate mine there, and they needed to ship out the phosphate. In 1911, they built a very luxurious inn. Originally, it was intended to be an inn for their railroad executives. But in 1913, they decided to go public with the inn and turn it into a world-class resort that they named the Gasparilla Inn. Okay. That was the same year that the Gasparilla Festival was shifted to February as a standalone event. Well, you can see from the railroad's interest, the more you publicize the Gasparilla Festival, the more people buy tickets to go to Tampa to attend. Right. The more people buy tickets to go to stay in your luxury resort hotel. Right. So they really wanted to push this whole Gasparilla thing. So they hired a man named Pat Lemoyne to write a more in-depth backstory on who Jose Gaspar really was. And that all was put into a brochure advertising the Gasparilla Inn. Hmm. That came out in 1913, and that's where all the blood-curdling stories about his harsh treatment of women captives... Uh, for example, they said that Captiva Island was named Captiva Island because he would take all of the attractive female captives and keep them as prisoners in his own private harem on Captiva Island. <laughs> now, since there was limited room for this many female captives, right. each time he added a new one, someone had to die. Whoa. <laughs> now, that's a pretty gruesome that's story. Gruesome. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, there was a lot far more, and all of this was in that 1911 or 1913 brochure. Mm -hmm. So, going through the years, the Gasparilla Festival embraced this story because it was good for business, it was good for the Gasparilla Festival. And in 1917, that brochure was put into the uh, Tampa Bay Morning Tribune as an article, The Truth About Jose Gaspar. And they just basically reprinted the brochure word for word. And they even credited the Charlotte Harbor and Northern Railroad as the source material. Hmm. Moving ahead to 1923, the president of the Charlotte Harbor and Northern Railroad, a man named Robert S. Uh, Bradley, was a golfing buddy with a Boston historian named Francis Bradley. They spell their names differently and they're no, no relation. Well, Francis Bradley was writing a book on pirates called Pirates of the West Indies. And his golfing buddy, Robert S. Bradley, gave him a copy of that brochure, which he reprinted in his scholarly work word for word, without checking any of the facts. Ah. Once it got into print, then historians started quoting as if Jose Gaspar was a real person. Was a real person. And I know you and I talked about the fact that it, if it isn't in print, mm -hmm. and it's not, quote unquote, a fact as an accepted fact, then, you know, there's a problem because, I mean, that's why they can take these in accuracies, if you will, mm -hmm. and then make them into something that is indeed fact when it's not. <laughs> yes, yes. That's that's str a struggle, I, mm -hmm. I would say, for most people, especially if they're historians. Well, and I certainly don't mean to knock all of the millions of people that enjoy the Gasparilla mm -hmm. Festival. It's a wonderful event. 
I applaud the event. I applaud the people that like to dress in, as fantasy pirates and have a good mm -hmm. time. It's good for the community, and it's a lot of fun. You know, back when they started this with Boca Grande and, and that mm -hmm. area, did because now boats come up through the harbor, so did they like have boats from Boca Grande that came up into Tampa as part of the Gasparilla event? I, I don't know when the boat parade started. Mm. I imagine it was very early on. I would think. Probably not as early as 1904, but I would say that after it became a standalone event throughout the, the teens, mm -hmm. they probably started the boat parade. Mm. Interesting. Because now, I mean, I know this year one of the things that I heard was that they wanted to make sure that people were not letting their beads go into the water. Um, and in the past, I don't think they cared that much, but in the view of ecology mm -hmm. and environmentally safe and making sure that the fish or the turtles or something don't, uh, the manatees, you know, don't end up wearing beads or swallowing mm -hmm. them. Um, so you always have the good and the bad with these <laughs> kind of events. Yes. Um, so now we're up in the 1920s. Mm -hmm. So what happens at that point? Well, the Gasparilla Festival continues to grow, mm -hmm. and authors throughout uh, the United States writing books about Florida pirates always included Jose Gaspar as if it were a real person. A real person. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem is, especially with the computer age and Wikipedia and all of those other sites, mm -hmm. authors were free to change the story. If you look at the original story of who Gaspar was supposed to be from the 1913 brochure, mm -hmm. that story has morphed into many different variations. Mm -hmm. For example, uh, the original story has him stealing, uh, it says that Jose Gaspar was an, actually an admiral in the Spanish Navy and was assigned to the court as the naval liaison to the king and was charged with transporting the crown jewels. Oh, wow. And he stole the crown jewels, and that's his first act that turned him to piracy. But then that story was changed to having him being framed for stealing the crown jewels mm. because he was political adversaries with the prime minister of Spain. That sounds more accurate to me. <laughs> yes. Uh, the problem is they mentioned the prime minister as Manuel Goda, and at the time, Jose Gaspar was supposedly there. Manuel Goda was 15 years old. Mm -hmm. So they didn't check the dates of the characters they used in their additional stories. Yeah, and isn't that often the case mm -hmm. where you don't actually check, uh, you just write? Yep. And then, you know, as an after fact, I guess, you, you go, oh, maybe I better check. But sometimes it doesn't work out so well. Mm -hmm. So in this case, yeah, it wasn't precisely. accurate. There's a couple more things about Jose Gaspar that uh, I find fascinating. The name was circulated around prior to 1904, which is where the crew may have got their original idea for the pirate. His name first appeared in a fictional story written in 1898. Wow. <laughs> and it was written in St. Louis, Missouri. Oh, that's interesting. Now, at the time, St. Louis was desperate to get the contract to be the city where the 1904 World's Fair was held. Right. It was, while they wound up being the host city and, you know, the famous 1904 World's Fair, Meet Me Ain't in St. Louis, Louis, the movie yeah, and everything right, else. Right, right. 
Now, the theme of this World Fair was the 100th anniversary of the Louisiana Purchase. Okay. Which was purchased in 1803, but really didn't take place until 1804. So 1904 would be the 100th anniversary. Mm -hmm. So the city council and planners in St. Louis were anxious to do everything they could to get the contract. One of those ideas was to come up with a fictional story about the original down payment for the Louisiana Purchase. Now here's how the story goes. This part's true. France demanded a down payment of $3 million in gold. That's where the truth ends. The U.S. government actually made that $3 million down payment by assuming some of the debts that France had already accumulated. But according to the story, Thomas Jefferson needed to send $3 million in gold to France without Congress's knowledge because they had not approved the purchase yet. <laughs> okay. So Thomas Jefferson decided to hire two pirates to secretly take this gold down payment to the uh, Napoleon in France. And he hired Jean Lafitte and Jose Gaspar. No kidding. Now, this story has everything. It's got, you know, pirates. It's got uh, government conspiracy. It's, you know, <laughs> uh, it, it's got everything a reader wants to read about. So that story perhaps is where Jose Gaspar's name first was mentioned. And this was 18... 1898. 98. Okay. Now, in 1901, there was a vaudeville hypnotist named Ricardo the Mystic who started running a seance scam in Tampa, find Gaspar's hidden treasure. Mm -hmm. And people would pay him big bucks to come to the seance where he would contact the spirit of Jose Gaspar and ask him where his treasure was buried. Finally, the scam was revealed and he was arrested by the police. So this name of Jose Gaspar was being bantered about in little bits prior to 1904. <laughs> My gosh, that's fascinating. And I'm just envisioning how that would have worked with um, a seance mm -hmm. of calling up the ghost to say, mm -hmm. this is where I put it. Yes. And then, you know, there'd be two or three people that would go hightailing it out to dig or look, and then the next group would come in and they'd get a different story. Mm -hmm. Another source for many of these false stories about pirates, and this surprised me too, was fishing guides. Starting around 1880, the tourist fishing industry took off in Florida. Uh -huh. You had a lot of rich people from the north, Wisconsin, and Minnesota, and New York, that all wanted to come to Florida to go deep sea fishing. And the fishing guys with the best pirate stories got the best clients. Oh, sure. While you're sitting out there on the boat waiting for the fish to strike, you're bored. Uh -huh. And if a guide can tell you a blood-curdling story about pirates... Well, it passes the time. Mm -hmm. Among the most famous is a man named uh, John Gomez. Panther John Gomez was his official nickname. He was a fishing guide that operated out of little south of Marco Island. And he was attributed as being the proof source of the whole Gaspar legend. Hmm. Well, he told a lot of pirate stories. So far, no one's been able to connect him directly to Jose Gaspar, but he told a lot of stories similar to Jose Gaspar's story. So when Pat Lemoyne, the guy that was hired to write the story for the brochure, needed a proof source, he chose John Gomez, who was conveniently already dead. He was really old. 
by that time uh, as his source for where he got the information. And this is in the early 1900s? Yes. He died in 1900. Okay. Uh, now, in addition to being a fishing guide, he also sold treasure maps <laughs> to where these pirates buried their treasure and made a lot of money. Did anybody ever find any treasure? No. 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 Okay. But people paid millions of dollars. Some of these rich people were multimillionaires. And they fell for the whole pirate treasure scheme hook, line, and sinker, to excuse the fishing pun joke. Mm -hmm. So when these fishing guides said, I've got this old map, and I know exactly where Blackbeard buried his treasure here in Florida, they bought it. Hmm. Wow. So as we move forward a little bit in time, mm -hmm. I mean, the fascination with pirates is based on what? I mean, in your mind, as you did your historical research, what is it about pirating and that whole lifestyle? Uh, because you and your wife both do mm -hmm. reenactments. And I know we talked a little bit about the accuracy of what, um, say, what weapon would be carried on a belt. And mm -hmm. that um, there are certain historians that say if it's not written, then it didn't exist, but you have proof that it did. Yes. And the bandana story, mm -hmm. that was really super interesting. So maybe mm -hmm. you want to share some of that. Well, yes. Uh, as far as how pirates looked, if you want to be a fanciful imaginary pirate, then you don't care. You're wearing whatever looks good to you and what you want to wear. Right. But for those that wish to portray an accurate pirate, it's a lot more complex because very little is documented as to how they actually looked. What were their shoes like? Well, they would have just worn whatever people at the time wore. Um, there's a big debate over whether pirates would have worn boots or not. Because mm -hmm. that's what you see mostly yes, is boots. Exactly. Uh, now, Boots were very rare among sailors. And if you go by the premise that pirates started off as sailors, therefore they would have looked like sailors, then probably no, they wouldn't have worn boots. But boots were very common among military officers and non-commissioned officers. They all wore them at that time period. Mm -hmm. So if you go with the premise that pirates would have preferred to look more like military people, more fierce, better armed, then, yeah, I think they would have worn boots. Yeah. Uh, but I, there's very and there's no document that says, oh, I saw that pirate and he was wearing boots. You just have to summarize. Yeah, right. I know um, when I was doing a little background work, you know, just for this um, discussion that we're having, I didn't realize that, you know, they were, like the buccaneers, were mm -hmm. actually hired by the government. Mm-hmm you know, to go invade some of the ships of the Spanish. I mean, that was kind of the parlay back and forth between uh, the buccaneers of maybe Florida or someplace along the coast uh, intercepting Spanish mm -hmm. galleon ships. And then what did they do? Did they take whatever goods they had or what What was the objective? The Back in the, back in the 17th, 16th, 15th centuries, all the way up until about 1725, countries did not maintain large navies. Mm -hmm. They maintained just enough to protect the home ports. And yet they weren't always at their home port. That's correct. So when you went to war, you were at a severe deficit. You needed a navy, and you needed it now. Mm. You did not have the money to build a navy. Right. You did not have the money to pay sailors. Mm. 
but you could offer letters of mark. Now, a letter of mark is a document giving the owner legal permission to attack ships listed on those letters of mark. Hmm. So when England went to war with Spain, they issued letters of mark to anybody that asked for them to allow them to attack Spanish shipping. So that they could have the ship? The deal is that 25% had to go back to the English crown. And the privateer could keep 75%. Okay. So they were legal. With letters of mark, you were welcome in your home port. Sure. Now, to the enemy, there's no difference between a privateer and a pirate. You're being attacked. You're being robbed. But to the home port, and especially to the privateer, it makes a huge difference. It means the difference between whether you're welcome when you go back to Jamaica or whether you're hanged. Oh, gee. So, that would be a sizable difference. Yes. And so this was common practice from all nations up until about 1725. So what stopped it? John Roberts. John Roberts, I consider him as the last of the great pirates from the golden age of piracy. Up until then, uh, pirates had a kind of code of conduct. Generally, they were very kind to their captives. The stories of captives being killed are very rare, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, pirates normally, they, it's good for business. If, I am, if the captives think they're going to be killed, they're going to fight really hard. Right. If they think they're going to be treated well, they'll surrender without a fight. Sure, makes sense. Blackbeard never harmed anyone uh, during his entire career as a, as a pirate. In fact, it was documented that when he attacked a ship, he would bring the crew over to his ship, take them below decks, drink rum with them, and play cards. <laughs> okay. Because crews are a lot easier to rob when they're drunk and happy. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. John Roberts changed that. He was the typical Hollywood pirate that was cruel and vicious. Turned kind of psychopathic and started killing his captives, burning cities even when they paid the ransom. He became public enemy number one all over the nation. Every ship in the Royal Navy was out to get John Roberts. And after that, nation said, you know, we need to reconsider this privateer thing a little bit. Let's, let's build up our own navies and not rely on these guys. They can't be trusted. Sure. That makes total sense. Yes. Now, privateers actually returned in full force in the early 19th century hmm. with the Simon Bolivar Revolution in Venezuela. It was a major revolution to pretty much take over control of all of the countries that Spain had been running for a couple hundred years. Uh, Mexico had their version of the anti-Spanish revolution. Simon Bolivar was leading it in out of uh, Venezuela, and he was issuing letters of marque to everyone to attack Spanish shipping, hmm. including Jean Lafitte. So a lot of those pirates were actually privateers, and even though their letters of marque were shaky, the American citizens were delighted to accept them because they could get all these goods dirt price uh, for dirt price or cheap prices. What was the reason they could buy things so cheaply? Well, Jean Lafitte is stealing all this treasure from Spanish ships. Right. Taking them to New Orleans. Okay. And selling them to New Orleans merchants at a very low profit margin because for him it was free merchant. Right, exactly. Right. So these merchants could get all of these fabulous wealth, wealthy products, silks, 
jewelry, gold. Uh, they could get it all at low prices. So it had to be really exciting when they came into port. Yes. Now, this is the interesting thing. Most people think the United States was very against Jean Lafitte because he was a pirate and committed acts of piracy. That's not true. It was fine with him committing acts of piracy. He was a privateer. He had legal permission to take those ships. Right. But he smuggled the merchandise in New Orleans without paying taxes on them. So the U.S. government was mad at him for that. It was a tax evasion issue rather than a piracy issue. Okay. But the people of New Orleans were delighted because they could get their merchandise cheap. Sure. So we started and they having didn't pay yeah, tax to him. No. So we started having a little war between the federal government and the local authorities. <laughs> the federal government would arrest the privateers and throw them in jail, and the next day the judge would release them all for lack of evidence. Oh my goodness! My goodness! That. So the left hand did take care of the right hand yes. in, that, in that particular case. Yes. Interesting. Now, you asked a question earlier that uh, I'd like to get back around to, which was, what started everyone's fascination with pirates? Mm -hmm. Where did this actually come from? That's impossible to say. One might say, oh, it was Hollywood, the movies about pirates. But if you go back before the movies you'll find that so many plays about pirates were written. So many books about pirates. Treasure Island, for example, with Robert Louis Stevenson. Mm -hmm. And this goes all the way back to William Shakespeare, who introduced pirates. pirates. Yeah, well, Pirates of Penzance in the 19th century, but Shakespeare has the Twelfth Night, which is all about pirates. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yes. So this fascination seems to always have been within our culture. The real explosion took place in 1710, when pirates were becoming very popular, especially among English pirates. Mm -hmm. So you started seeing a huge amount of production on the London stage of plays about pirates. So people attended and it became more romantic. Yes, and all of the romanticized stories we hear about pirates came out from the London theater in the early uh, 18th century. And that just carried on through. I make a comparison. It's very similar to the Western craze that television went through in the 50s and early 60s. Sure, sure. When there were so many Westerns, you know, Rawhide, Maverick. There's tons of Lone Westerns. Lone Ranger. Lone Ranger, <laughs> right. And some of that was based upon truth, and some of it was sure. invented for the, the, uh, for the media. Sure. Same thing with pirates. Right, right. I think the whole uh, Lonesome Dove series, when mm -hmm. that was on, you know, that was a little closer maybe to the truth of how hard it was, mm -hmm. you know, to be uh, a cowboy at that yes. time. And I would imagine that it wasn't that easy to be a pirate. I wouldn't think. No, uh, most pirates didn't survive more than about six months. Six months? Yeah. What was it, because they had a cannonball that went through them? Or <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you have, you have two things. There was a lot of danger. Being, being a pirate. Uh, first, there's a lot of danger being a sailor. Look how many ships Sank. got lost right. in storms. Right. And then how many people died of disease because sanitary conditions on a ship are dreadful. Right, you had rats and everything else. On sure, there. so you take all of that and then multiply it by you're going into a business where you're going to get shot at mm -hmm. continually. Uh, or if you're caught in port, you're hanged. But then there's the other side of the coin where some of these pirates were actually very successful and retired. Hmm. So you had to kind of uh, play your cards, so to speak, mm -hmm. and just hope for the best. Yes. 
Um, so percentage-wise, 10% made it to retirement? I would probably say that's a realistic number, although it's very hard to say, especially with privateers, because mm -hmm. some of these people wandered in and out between being a privateer and a pirate uh, from month to month. So why would they do that? Well, first of all, there's that 25% of what you take that you have to give back to the crown. Right. If you don't want to give that back, you're a pirate. Right, right. Secondly, what if there's no war and nobody's issuing letters of mark? Then well, you don't have a job. You don't have a job, and now you're a pirate. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these people shifted back and forth, which is why the English government dealt with the problem by issuing mass pardons to everyone when they needed privateers again. Oh, that's interesting. So all that big long list of names to go find yes. suddenly disappeared, and yes. you, you can now Be work a, for us. <laughs> come, come in. You know, we need we need privateers. We're going to go to war again. Mm -hmm. Come on in. Sign this people piece of paper, and that's what Blackbeard did. He had actually accepted the king's pardon, and technically, when he was attacked and killed, it was an illegal attack. Now I remember we talked briefly about what it was. Was it Blackbeard? I think it was that um, no, it was Morgan that mm -hmm. that uh, went to the Tower of London for three years, and he yes. said uh, in the Tower of London it was very plush. Yes, and then he was you know released, but well, he didn't serve hard time. No, no, um, Morgan was never a pirate. He always sailed with letters of mark. Okay, uh, Morgan was a the master privateer sailing out of Jamaica from uh, 1655 until 1670. Uh, started off as a junior officer, very well connected. He married the governor's daughter, which happened to be his first cousin, because the governor was his uncle. Oh. Uh, and they did things like that in those days. Uh, then when his uncle died of illness, and the new governor became best friends with Henry Morgan. So he always had letters of mark. The problem is, England was kind of in a cold war with Spain. It was not officially declared, yet both Spanish and English shipping were constantly attacking each other hmm. and taking the other ships. And Morgan came up with a plan to take the richest city of all of the Spanish Empire in the Caribbean, which was Panama. So in 1670, with letters of Mark, he captured the city. The problem is that back in England, the King of England signed a treaty with the King of Spain. Out saying, we're going to put an end to all of this privateering, mm -hmm. and we're going to be nice and buddy-buddy from now on. So when he came back with his plunder, um, it caused a major diplomatic incident back in England. The governor was removed and censured, and Morgan was arrested. And that's when he went to the Tower. Yes, and they took him to the Tower of London, where he spent several years. Um, but it, it, the top, for Morgan, the Tower of London was a three-room suite with servants, and he was allowed out during the day. So it really wasn't that harsh of a treatment. But it did a lot of damage to his health, mm -hmm. because he wasn't used to the English winters. Winters, yeah, yeah he, and the he, dampness. Yeah, he had been living in, in Jamaica mm -hmm. for like 15 years. Right. Uh, at any rate, Spain reneged on their contract and started attacking English shipping again. And the kings released Henry Morgan, because he's the only guy that knew how to deal with Spain, knighted him, made him governor of Jamaica, and sent him back. <laughs> and he lived there until he died. Until he died, right. He also had three of the richest sugar plantations on the island. Hmm. So Morgan's treasure was the island. 
mm-hmm. the sugar plantations, yeah. not buried treasure. Now, an interesting thing about Morgan, uh, you hear a lot of stories about how horrible Morgan was to his captives. One of the stories goes that when he was attacking one Spanish city, he used nuns as human shields oh, wow. in assaulting the, assaulting the walls, wow. and that he always tortured all of his captives and things like this. That's all fiction. Morgan kept incredibly accurate records, and nothing like that appears in his records. That all came from a book that was published in 1678. Well, he wasn't around. And Morgan was around. At that time, he was governor of Jamaica in 1678. But he wasn't doing right. the privateering. Now, the book was published by a, na- by a man named Alexander Escamillon, who claims to have been a member of Morgan's crew and personally witnessed all of this. Hmm. Well, when the book was published, it was published in Holland. And at that time, Holland, the Dutch, and England were at war. So any negative book coming out about the English sold well. Sure. So he made up all of these horrible, blood-curdling stories, and also some of the history of Morgan, that he had originally come to Jamaica as an indentured servant, which really upset Morgan, because... I mean, his father was a colonel in the army, his, uh, his uncle was a general, and then later so uh, he wasn't governor. An no, no, he came as a lieutenant yeah. and, uh, to the original expedition. So when Morgan found out about this book, he sued the guy in, for libel in the court of law and won. And won? And the books had to be pulled off the shelf. But when Morgan died, the books went back on the shelf and it's still in print today. Really? So when you buy a book about Morgan, you're going to read all of these inaccurate, horrible stories, and most historians have based their assumption of Morgan on this book. You know, that's rather sad, mm-hmm. I, I think, because, I mean, if you happen to be descended from that family, mm-hmm. then everybody's looking at your family as this terrible, you know, situation, and it wouldn't have been true. That's and, But there's no, no way of... I guess, proving mm-hmm. that it wasn't true, per se. I mean, you'd have to do your homework. Huh. And that's what started me doing the research on these books. Is to find out the, the truth, truth behind everything. Right. So what do you do with the truth once you know it? Uh, you put it in a book. It's <laughs> the best thing I can do. Well, uh, I mean, but you do do lectures and yes. presentations. So you take yes. inaccuracies mm-hmm. and try to turn them into more factual yes. uh, information for people. So you can either choose to believe the fantasy and you know mm-hmm. the hype about what, because I'm sure they did a lot of that to scare the bejesus out of people. Like if, if you saw that a pirate ship was coming towards you, you were ready to surrender rather than maybe, you know, die. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that that's so fascinating because um, they used it for their own political gain. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, it wasn't actually true. And a lot of them did it to make money. Um, the original book that created most of the falsehoods about pirates from the Golden Age of Piracy mm-hmm. was a book written in 1724. Do you have some of these books, by the way? Yes, I have all of them. Do you? Yes. So you've collected the historically correct ones. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and the inaccurate ones, too. Mm. Uh, but basically, it has a really long title, Shorten It to the General History of Pirates, by Charles Johnson. Have you ever met a descendant from one of these pirates? Yes, I have. And what, what did you think? Uh, well... <laughs> 
one of the one of Blackbeard's crew members was a uh, a man whose last name was Salter. He was w definitely one of Blackbeard's crew because he was arrested in Bath, North Carolina, after Blackbeard had been killed. Now later he was released because he had taken the king's pardon. And then the king offered another pardon, and he took that one too, so he was released and went back to North Carolina and became a rather wealthy planter. And his son was one of the ratifiers of the Declaration of Independence for the oh, state of North cool. Carolina. How cool. So I met his direct descendant, who mm -hmm. is actually a DEA agent in Oklahoma. Oh, for goodness <laughs> sakes. Yes, same name, last name Salter. That's fascinating. Now, Blackbeard's quartermaster, a man by the name of William Howard, was also arrested and then released and had an enormous amount of money after he was released. Imagine that. Hmm. And bought the island of Ocracoke. Where is that? Uh, North Carolina. It's in the Outer Banks. And that was the island actually where Blackbeard was killed in the, oh, on okay. Ocracoke. Blackbeard okay. had a base there. And there are dozens of his direct descendants living on the island. On the island? Living on the island of Ocracoke. How many people live on the island? Uh, it's a big tourist industry now. Oh, is it? Yeah, you go to the south end of Ocracoke, and there's about 25 bed and breakfasts. Oh, my. A okay. couple of other hotels, restaurants all over the place, and then there's almost nothing for the rest of the island. And it goes up to Cape Hatteras. Hmm. So you could also take the ferry over from the lighthouse of Cape, Hatter Cape Hatteras. Uh, but most of the island is national park. But there's, there's several thousand people living on the island. If you could have been a pirate, mm -hmm. would you? Probably, yeah. Yeah, I would think, you know, part of your marine background, too. I mean, just, you know, like... Okay, but I would have been one of go. the good pirates. Yeah, you would have been a privateer or yes. a buccaneer. Yes, Yeah, not just out there doing your thing. Mm -hmm. Huh. I, I just, I, I think that's so, so cool that you were able to meet somebody that was a direct descendant. So did they have artifacts and things like that maybe that, you know, had come down through the family? Uh, I don't know, but probably not. Mm. There are very few people that have artifacts going back to 1710. Mm. Um, because I people would think just, they yeah. would have held on to it, though, just to pass it down. Like, you know, this was your great, 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 great grandfather's. You know, like knife or... One would hope so, but people didn't keep things back, back then. then. It's like, okay, we get a new set of dishes, I'll throw these away or... Well, that's you know, true. Give that's... them to the poor. They, you know, these th things didn't have that kind of sentimental meaning. Right. Even that's... if, hey, this is the pistol uh, that, mm -hmm. you know, your grandfather used when he was a pirate. Okay, here's a new model. Yeah, I'm going to throw that one away. It's no good anymore. Yeah, I guess that's true. How did Blackbeard actually die? I know he, you know, but what was it, a battle that yes. he lost? Yeah, it was, um, it was an illegal attack, actually, uh, on, on Blackbeard in North Carolina. Now, the story is very complicated and is more politically oriented than anything else. Hmm. Blackbeard had accepted the king's pardon from the governor of North Carolina. Now, whether that pardon was legal or not, it wasn't, because part of the provisions of the pardon is that you hadn't committed any act of piracy in the last year, and Blackbeard had just blockaded Charlestown, South Carolina, and taken 10 ships uh, a month before he took the pardon. Okay. But still, he got the pardon from the governor of North Carolina. Now, the governor of Virginia was of opposite political party than the governor of North Carolina. So a lot of the party members that were the 
party of the governor of Virginia approached him and said, we can get this governor out of office. and We can use Blackbeard as the tool to politically embarrass him and get him removed. Hmm. So the whole attack on Blackbeard was more politi- politically motivated from one party against the other. How did they get him? I mean, what did they do? They, they got two senior officers from the Royal Navy to participate in this, but their participation was very low-key. In case this blew up in their faces, they didn't want to be implicated in mm-hmm. the legal attack. Mm-hmm. So they hired, or they ordered Lieutenant Robert Maynard, who was actually the most passed over lieutenant in the Royal Navy and the least distinguished officer there was. So he was, you know, if you're going to sacrifice somebody, that's the guy you're going to do. Exactly. They didn't use Royal Navy ships. They hired two civilian ships, crewed by civilian, or manned by civilian sailors. And each ship had about 30 Royal Navy sailors on board not in uniform. They sailed down to Ocracoke where Blackbeard had a little base. Now Blackbeard had recently just captured a French sugar ship so he had violated his terms of his agreement anyway. Sure. Um, and it's interesting to note that half of the cargo from that ship was later found in the cellar of the governor of North Carolina. Oh for goodness sake. So, oh there you go. <laughs> yeah so uh, that's, that's kind of the, the connection there. Uh, but still, Virginia had no legal authority in North Carolina. They didn't, you know, at that time, it was states, well, it wasn't a state, it was a colony or province. But governors couldn't invade other colonies without that governor's permission. Mm-hmm. So they uh, sailed down to where Blackbeard was anchored at Ocracoke, and he had about 20 of his crew on board his vessel. And the two vessels approached at dawn. And they engaged in a battle that lasted about two hours. Now, the wind was dead calm. At one point or another during the battle, all of the vessels ran aground. So you imagine that it's not a fierce, fast-pitched battle. It's three ships stuck on a sandbar shooting at each other, but they're slightly out of range, so nobody's hitting anything. Then the wind freshens, and one ship gets free and gets a little closer. Well, finally, as the tide came in, the, all the ships got free, and Blackbeard's ship was directly attacked by Maynard's ship. Blackbeard boarded, Maynard's men came from below deck, and in a hand-to-hand pitched battle, hmm. Blackbeard and several of his crew were killed, and the rest surrendered. Hmm. So the survivors... So it was a surprise attack. Yes, yeah. yes, very much of a surprise attack. Uh, and even though Blackbeard had seen the ship earlier, uh, it... It, Ocracoke Inlet is the entrance uh, to Pamlico Sound from the Atlantic Ocean. Mm-hmm. So every ship coming into the Carolina, North Carolina has to pass right by and Ocracoke. And you probably just thought it was yeah. a regular ship. Yeah, but it's also one of the most dangerous channels to navigate because of the sandbars. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't unusual for ships to drop anchor at nighttime and not risk going through the passage in the dark. Sure. Sure. So when these two ships arrived at late at night and dropped anchor, no big deal, no problem. Yeah, surprise, surprise, huh? Mm-hmm. Wow, wow. What is your favorite reenactment if you're going to go do one? Oh, my favorite type of reenactment. I mean, I really miss Mountain Man Rendezvous. Do you? I loved that. It was a, a lot of fun. Uh, 
just the people are nice. And uh, when you do to a, I did Mountain Man Rendezvous out in California and Utah and Nevada, and uh, and you get to do fun things like uh, you know shoot your rifles for competition, at, you know little tin targets and, and tin rabbits. And do they do like them that. in Montana and Wyoming? Oh and yes. stuff too. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. Yeah, uh, I, I like doing the the pirate festivals when I can interpret pirate life to the. To the public. That's what I enjoy doing most is teaching. Mm-hmm. So when I can interact with people and talk about the history, I enjoy so that. So where would be some that you might be doing, you know, in 2022 so people could come and find you? <laughs> well, there's, we, I understand that Cedar Key is going to have their Pirate Festival again. Okay. Uh, that's going to be in 2022. I think November, the dates are not locked in, but Cedar Key is one of the all-time best. Uh, St. Augustine has some pirate festivals that are really good. I will be at Pirates of the Treasure Coast, which is Fort Walton Beach. No, I'm sorry, Fort Pierce. Fort Pierce uh, down by... Uh, is that by Boca Raton? Or? Yeah, it's north of that. Okay. Uh, it's north of Fort Lauderdale. Okay. It's, um, it's like close to Vero Beach. Okay. Uh, that's in February, and I will be there in February. In costume. Of course. Uh, well, period correct clothing. I make a distinction. Okay, all right. Yeah, a costume is something you wear in a play. Right. It's not authentic. So where it, do you find your period correct clothing? <laughs> we make them. Do you really? My, you wife, wife? my wife sews. Uh, in fact, uh, she downloads photographs from the Victoria and Albert Museum of actual articles that have survived mm. since 1710. Jackets and corsets, for example. Which but where do you find the patterns? Well, my wife's pretty good. She enlarges the pictures, cuts them out, and makes patterns from oh the enlargements. Oh my goodness, wow. So that's talent. Yes. That is talent. So you really step into your character. I do. And is your character named Robert? Or do you have uh, a different name? Uh, well, when I'm in character, I go by Cutlass Jake. Cutlass Jake. Cutlass Jake. How did you arrive at that name? Uh, a friend gave it to me. Uh, the very first pirate group I joined, which was uh, called Blackbeard's Crew, uh, everyone had to have a name, mm-hmm. but you weren't allowed to give your own name. Okay. So the very first event you attended without mm-hmm. a name, after the event, everybody would sit around and drink rum until somebody thought of a name for you. And did you have to like the name, or was it just given to you? It was just given to me, but I liked it. You liked it, okay. So, yes. And uh, your wife is in costume as well. Period correct clothing. Period correct (laughs) clothing. And so does she have a name as... We never actually came up with one for her, Um, but, uh, you know, her real name is Anne, spelled with an E, A-N-N-E, which is the old English way of spelling it. Right. So uh, whatever name we have for her, and we've used several in the past, it's, it's got Anne in there somewhere. Okay. I think it's just all so fascinating. It really is. Um, so one of the things that I want to make sure, now you are available to come and talk any place in the state of Florida? Yes. Or, okay. I didn't know whether you wanted geographically just to be like on the west coast of Florida. No, in fact, uh, I'm doing a talk in February at uh, the Diving Museum in Islamaranda. Did I say that right? I don't think so. I okay. think it's Esmeralda. Yeah, that's it. One of those <laughs> islands on the way to Key West. On the way to Key West. Between Key Largo and Key West. Uh-huh. Uh, so I, I'll be doing a talk down there. 
Uh, hopefully I will be doing another presentation at the Pirate and Treasure Museum in St. Augustine. I've, uh, I've been there before. Uh, I am doing a couple of presentations for the Tampa Bay History Center mm -hmm. coming up in um, January. So if people contact you through, because I'm putting as the synopsis ways to contact you, mm -hmm. then would you be able to send them a schedule of where you'll be? All of my events are posted on my website. Okay, so and I'm putting the website in there. Perfect. So if you want to know where I am, you can just click on my website, click on events, mm -hmm. and every all of my appearances are listed there. And if that event has a link to that specific event, that's included. So you can just click on the link and it'll tell you all about it. Awesome. And you and I have uh, another connection mm -hmm. through the Florida Authors and Publishers Association. So we will be working together over mm -hmm. the next couple of years. So I'll learn more about pirating, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> we, we certainly can help. <laughs> yep. At least I'd like to, you know, follow you at an event sometime. That would be great uh, to come to one of our events. So Cedar Key is, is a real good one if you can make it up there. Uh, but the, actually, Anna Maria Island has one uh, every year in August. Uh, I did that. Why that's a hot time of the year to. Why you do get the sea breeze, but yes, that's pretty hot down there. Their event is indoors. It is. Yes. Well, that's interesting. I would have thought that they. I guess because of the weather, because it mm -hmm. can be very iffy. So do they have like a great big uh, uh, coliseum or all? Oh. It's a hotel. Okay. Right. So they basically take over the the bottom floor of this hotel. And then there's a restaurant where they have a, a, a pirate ball the following day. Oh my goodness, how fun. And everybody wears costumes. They wear costumes. <laughs> they would have costumes, yes. not the period correct clothing, as you said. Um, all right, so I really want to thank you for being on the show. I think this has been uh, certainly eye-opening to a lot of people who don't understand anything more about pirates mm -hmm. than Gasparilla and throwing beads and watching the ships come in. So now they have a little better understanding of the some of the legends are not quite accurate and a lot of it was done for political reasons and for acquisition mm -hmm. of, um, you know, if, if you will, sort of a navy, mm -hmm. uh, that these would be ships that could be then useful to protect a coast. And if they had more ships than you did, you went and tried to find some of theirs. Mm -hmm. So very, very fascinating. Thank you again for being my guest, and uh, everybody out there, please go and make this your very best life. Uh, join us again for the Synergy Connection Show. Talk to you next time. Boomers Forever Young is really making a name for themselves as an exciting nutritional company with products that really work. People from all over the country are starting to take notice. Their whole person approach to health and wellness, combined with their unique array of powerful natural health products, are setting them apart from all the other companies in the nutrition industry. Their customers love the one-on-one -on -one free consultations and the results they experience. Sound a little too good to be true? Then go online to boomerboost.com today and sign up for a free consultation with a product specialist or just give us a call at 1-800-861-4609. Again, that's boomerboost.com or call 1-800-861-4609 to join the thousands already experiencing the benefits of Boomers Forever Young products.